Matt Seiler here, lover of a good competition. One of the other guests on Jeff's phenomenal podcast threw a gauntlet trying to make his episode the most popular on the phenomenal ATBS, the podcast series. Being the frequent guest on the only sub-series, SFAO, I want to make sure that I win. And by winning, Jeff wins. And by Jeff winning, we all win. So please like, share, own, make sure that it gets the popularity it demands as ATBS rules the world. Welcome to ATBS, the podcast, all things big and small. I'm your host, Jeff Volmerick. Thanks, as always, for joining me. The episode you're about to hear was recorded during the winter months, the early winter months of 2020. So there is no reference to COVID-19, and there is no reference to the current social unrest and sad but very real scenario we're experiencing in the United States today. Back in early January, a gentleman by the name of Billy DeMong stepped into the pod ship to join me for a conversation specifically about the athlete's mind, body, and spirit. Billy DeMong is one of the most highly decorated Nordic combined skiers the United States has ever seen. Nordic combined is ski jumping and cross country skiing combined into one event. Billy competed at the highest level for 17 years, I believe. He competed in five Olympics, multiple world championships, has medals of all different colors in each and every one of those events that he competed in. He currently is the executive director of USA Nordic Sports, which oversees the sports of ski jumping and Nordic Combine for both men and women in the United States of America. They can be found at usanordic.org. Billy and I sat in the pod ship, had a wonderful conversation. I was thrilled that he joined me. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Billy DeMong, welcome to All Things Big and Small, ATBS, the podcast. Thanks for coming by. Hey, thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Skiing this morning? Got out, got up on top of uh, a peak, you know, halfway between Park City and Salt Lake, and it was uh, it was a bit gnarly. Warm and windy today. It was warm and very windy. Yeah. We've been, uh, as most of you know, we're here in Park City, Utah, and we're in the midst of a a warm winter storm, which is uh, always interesting and tons of wind over the last couple of days. So Billy, we, we've had a couple conversations in the past few days, and um, I think a good place to start is with the athletic career, where you grew up and, and kind of what did you do when you were younger, at, you know, like pre, pre-Nordic combine before you really focused into that, like uh, what were your other athletic interests when you were a young boy? So I was a multi-sport athlete, which I definitely advocate now as a parent. So I did soccer, track, cross-country running, 
rock climbing, a lot of different things, mountain biking, etc. But, you know, I really honed in on Nordic as kind of the, the avenue that I wanted to pursue at a pretty early age. Like, you know, I would say like 12, 13, 14. Right. Which I feel is like, you know, the age where... Athletes should be taking responsibility for their careers and also parents should be like relinquishing like, you know, myself as a parent, I see myself pushing my kids to get out, you know, but it's not to be Olympic champions or Olympic athletes. It's just like, hey, we signed you up for this. We paid for it. Let's go. Right. So I think, you know, 12, 13, 14 was where I took that focus on and specialized really not until about 15. And that's what I offer as advice to other parents and also to my kids. Sound advice. Yeah. We see it all the time. You know, here we are. and, And I don't think we're unique in this part of the world where you see parents on the side of the soccer field or at the ice rink or at the ski hill or whatever it might be. And, and somehow they're really focused on, yeah, like what Johnny or Jane is doing and, and really giving them the business to be in there making it happen. And, and it, I think it's really hard as a parent to to take the hands off the wheel a little bit at some point, right? And and let the coaches coach, yep. whether it's, you know, five-year-old soccer, it doesn't matter what it is, right? Let the coaches coach. You can do your parenting at home, right? Right. You know, it's funny you say that because I feel like I'm one of the few parents that doesn't actually show up and like stare at practice (laughs) and my kid's only nine. Yeah. Right. You know? And I'm like, no, I mean like I pay for my kid to go do this and you guys are all here like trying to coach the coaches and I'm like, meh, Mm -mm. you don't need to do that. No, you don't. So yeah, it's really interesting how that works. Yeah. And I fell into the same category when my daughters were young. I'm like, okay, here you go. Yeah. Drop them off. And and get out of the way, right? And right. let them have because they, as we know, they behave so much differently when we're not present. Yeah, right. Or at least that's what it, that's what I'm told, right? Yeah. So you grew up in uh, a small town, not too far from Lake Placid, New York. Mm-hmm. And um, people have asked me, as a former ski jumping ski jumper, you know, how did you get into ski jumping? Well, you need a ski jump in your backyard, right? Right. And so. Um, I know some of the story, but I think it's worth telling, you know, how far away you were from the ski jumps and from training and how much effort went in, you know, from your mother and, and then coaches there and how you really kind of found your stride literally and figuratively, um, and the Lake Placid Ski Club and all those things. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. You know, you're absolutely right. There's only about 30 places in the United States where you can grow up and do this. So from Anchorage to New Hampshire, you know. There's not a lot of opportunity, but the clubs that do it are really good at introducing youth to the sport. It's a very safe sport. And it's something where I actually grew up doing cross country from, I think, five years old. And then at about seven, Larry Stone, who you know, I do. he came by and showed our whole cross country program in Saranac Lake, New York, uh, a video of kids jumping and, you know, people ski flying and everything else. And there was probably 10 of us, I think that signed up after that. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot of uh, driving for my parents for sure. And something that I look back on and I'm like, would I do that for my kid? You know, cause we literally were 45 minutes away from the jumps, Yeah, but we went there three nights a week 
Yeah. And so jumping at night is fantastic, isn't it? it? Well, it's the, it's kind of the best thing ever. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it was, it was a big commitment by my parents, something I fell in love with at an early age and something I did with a lot of friends of mine that, you know, we grew up skiing together with. Yeah. Right. So that's fantastic. Then, you know, fast forward a little bit to, uh, how old were you when you, um, when you hit the world cup circuit, when you really started to hit the world, you know, the world stage of competition. So I was pretty, pretty bad. I don't think we should <laughs> skip this part. I was terrible at uh, ski jumping until about 17 years old. And it was literally one year where I made the commitment that I would, you know, rather die than not get better at this. Right. And uh, we got a Norwegian coach who believed in us and, you know, everything started to fire so at 17 years old, I started to compete on the world stage. And that was like the beginning of my career where I did, you know, World Cup, actually Olympics in the same year. Right. So pretty wild. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. That's very impressive, by the way. For And, and I think it's interesting because you know, my hope is and my intention is to have a broad audience for ATBS, the podcast. And many aren't going to know, you know, like what Nordic Combined Skiing is. And, and so... Let's talk about that a little bit. Cross-country skiing and Nordic ski jumping, mm-hmm. a rather unique sport. Uh, I mean, there are some others you can think of, biathlon, where cross-country skiing and, and shooting a, a rifle, target shooting is part of it. Maybe decathlon, where you're combining some other things. But there aren't too many sports where it's two sports linked together as one. Right. Yeah. Nordic combined is definitely, it's an odd one, but it's uh, one of the original Olympic disciplines from 1924. It combines Nordic ski jumping, as you described, which is for those of you at home, the one where you try to go as far as possible. Not not flipping and twisting. Not flipping and (laughs) twisting. In modern day Nordic combined, the winner of the jumping uh, starts first in a Nordic cross country race. And there's a time deficit given to each competitor. So, for instance, if you jump 10 yards or 10 meters shorter than the winner of the jumping, you start about a minute behind them. But whoever crosses the finish line first wins. So it's a very exciting format and one that, you know, USA Today is ranked as like the hardest Olympic discipline. It's something I fell in love with at an early age. Yeah. So it's a, it's a wild sport. It's really, I think, spectator friendly and fun to watch. Well, uh, especially now where, where the venues are, are loops and laps where you can see the race, right. Mm-hmm. Where you can see it unfold. You can see everybody chasing. Yep. And generally speaking, I mean, they, they turn the jump stadium into the cross country stadium right. for the race. So how much time is there between the jumping competition and generally speaking, and like in a world cup between the jumping and the cross country. So it, it, they're trying to push it down to an hour or less. Yeah. So keeping it tight. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. They did have one format that was called the compact sprint. Mm -hmm. 15 minutes from the time the last jumper landed to the time the first person left the start. Wow. That's a little tight. It is tight. Yeah. And I miss that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't do that anymore, but yeah, right. I did like that. Nice. As I said in the uh, introduction of, of Billy, you know, five times to the Olympics, mm-hmm. lots of people will look at ski jumping and say, I can't imagine ever doing it. 
Uh, others may have some familiarity and may even have tried it at a younger age. Many would, you know, admit to having aspirations to go to the Olympics. I know I did. And here you are, here you sit, you know, post-career having having competed in five Olympics. And, and I think we were talking about it yesterday, something like a 17, 16, 17, 18 year World Cup career. Mm-hmm. Um how was that? Let, let's just dig into that a little bit. What's it like being living the life of a of an Olympian, which only comes along once every four years, and and lots of people think, oh, that's you just get put your skis on and go, right? But life continues throughout. What's it like being out there for that length of time? So you know, it's like being a entrepreneur. You know, like a self employed person. You know, you definitely have to want it. I think the biggest thing people don't understand about Olympic athletes is that they are responsible for themselves every day. So financially, athletically, like you have to get up, train, market yourself, do all the things that are associated with the business aspect of the whole deal. Right. Like you said, 18 years is a long time. To me, it was something I fell in love with. I was very passionate about. You and I briefly discussed before this, the difficulty in transitioning you know, there's some aspects of when I look back on my career, I'm like, you know, it was awesome. It was super fun, but it was very hard, right? There was definitely nobody signing my paychecks. Like I paid myself when I made money. I was responsible for every aspect of what I did. And I think that's the thing that people don't appreciate. You know, they think that, you know, Olympians just like wake up and somebody takes care of them all day. You're not getting an NBA paycheck. Definitely not. There are no contracts. Did you have sponsors? I did, but... You're one of the few. I'm one of the few, and it was only in those like kind of peak years, you know, between 2008 and 2014. Yeah. You know? They only want you when you're at the top, right? And they do. And, uh, you know, I personally manage that, you know, with an agent. Right. So it's a challenging environment. I think people don't appreciate that. Let's talk a little bit about the state of winter sports mm-hmm. in, in the things that you're super familiar with. You just said, you know, it's easy to assume that people are being taken care of. Mm-hmm. And we know very well, you know, as executive director of USA Nordic, that it's not, there isn't a whole bunch of money just coming in from the government or coming in from the US ski team or whatever it might be, right? It's it's a full time. And I suspect most of your job is making sure there's money to support athletes and to do their thing. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think what people don't probably recognize on average is that there is no government money, period. Right. Like the U.S. government does not fund Olympic athletics at all. We, as Ski Jumping and Nordic Combined, have started our own nonprofit, which is USA Nordic Sport, because we lost funding from the U.S. ski team. How many years has that been now? Has that been seven years or? Uh, it's been about 10 for okay. ski jumping and about five for Nordic Combined. Yeah. You know, we're we're working together, but, you know, I think they work in a resource constrained environment as well. However, one of the challenges that people need to understand is that these sports are, are basically funded by s- private sponsors and donors. Yeah. And so my role as executive director for USA Nordic Sport is basically raising the funds that's required 
to provide the resources for our teams, men and women, Nordic combined and ski jumping. So it's a pretty big challenge. It's a big job. It's a big job and a big challenge. And, and there are a bunch of good people that I know help out. And, and, uh, but like you said, as an athlete, you had to do it. Yeah. And, and now as executive director, you're doing it for those athletes and, and they still have to do it, right. They still mm-hmm. have to go out and market themselves and, and find sponsors for themselves. I'm sure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so as a Olympic athlete, I think the biggest thing is, is realizing that you are kind of your own small business. Right. And, you know, trying to create like, you know, the marketing and sales department, you know, the accountability to get out of bed and go and do the hard work that's going to, that's required to actually be the best. Working hard on the athletic part was something that I embraced. It's something that, you know, I didn't embrace when I was 17, but eventually, (laughs) you know, around 2021, 22, I started to really embrace that aspect of it. I found a lot of joy in just being out there and working hard and pushing myself. And especially it's, it's interesting to me to see the number of people that gravitate towards endurance sports later in life. Yeah. Like triathlon running. There's a ton of it. Cycling. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden they're like hardcore at like 45, you know, 55, right. whatever. Yeah. Here's where the conversation starts, right? So it's funny to me because like people are like, oh, I don't want to work hard. I don't, you know, endurance sports are dumb. And then all of a sudden later in life, they're like, I love this. Right. I want this. Yeah. And they want this for their kids. Yeah. And I'm like, all right. All right. You know, I end up coaching like a ton of people. I bet you do. Not, not like, you know, professionally, but just like friends of mine that are like, oh, you know, you were there. (laughs) Yeah, you were. (laughs) Uh, word out on the street is uh, Bill, one of Billy's nickname is the human lung, right? Like the man, the man has a huge VO2 max and, and can make some things happen at high altitudes and for long distances and the whole works. Yeah. But I mean, to be honest, Jeff, like I didn't have a super extraordinary VO2 max or anything. I just worked very hard for a yeah, long time. Right. This is all very trainable, but most people don't embrace it at a young age, mm. it's later in life that people tend to like want to jump into it. Yeah. I guess that's why I brought it up. Yeah. I'd like to hear your opinion on it. Cause to me, it's, it's, it's really interesting that, you know, you see a lot of youth athletes gravitating towards sports that require little effort. And that might be a cultural thing, right? Where there's so much available in our world today, right? Mm-hmm. In the, in this, in the part of the world that we live in, there are so many distractions, right? That, yeah. that, you know, you grew up in a small town in upstate New York, like not upstate as in just north of New York City, but way up in the Adirondacks. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, a certain amount of, you know, find your own play, figure out how to enjoy yourself outdoors. And I think that's that's an interesting piece, right? Like when you grew up, iPhones didn't exist yet. Um, not that there's anything wrong with the technology, my God, living in this magic show that we live in today. I mean, look at what we're recording on right now, Right. right? You know, me, my personal experience was, um, you know, I learned to ski when I was young in Western Pennsylvania and I was an Alpine skier. My parents were both on the national ski patrol. So I just happened to be at a ski area all the time, little one, mm-hmm. and they would just boot us out on the hill cause they had to go put the red coats on and, and go to work. And when we moved to Lake Placid, I was 10 and there were ski jumps and a guy just like Larry Stone, although it wasn't him at the time, he was one of my coaches later. 
I, I really haven't been able to triangulate in on where did I either hear about it? Did somebody come to school? Did I just see the 1932 jump that was out at Intervale and see it? And, you know, you look around a ski hill and look at 10 year old kids and they just jump off everything. And so a ski jump looks pretty attractive. You and I differ in this that I, and I've said this to many of my friends over the years, I, I enjoy a gravity fed sport. Uh, that's not to say that I'm not afraid. I'm, I don't mind going uphill, working to get uphill to be able to come downhill. But um, they tried to turn me on to cross country Nordic combine when I was young because I started to grow and get length and and uh, and it, I was just terrible at it and it made me sick and and I was and I, to this day I I even have cross country skis in the garage that I just don't use. It's just not my thing. My daughter Taylor is a crew athlete and she is built much like me. And, you know, they have to go out and do cardio. They've got to go running and she's just not built like a runner, right? She's not thin and lean and, and doesn't have that, but she does it. And she realizes it's a long haul, right? You got to put your head down. And I'd love to transition into that. This is a question that, that my daughter Taylor specifically wanted me to ask, which is, I don't know what you would call it, but when you're out there just grinding on the cardiovascular work that needs to happen, psychologically, how did you manage that? Well, I mean, that's always a good question. You know, I developed definitely over time as a 17, 18, 19 year old, you sort of cheat it, sneak it, right? you know, just <laughs> right, get, get it by. done. If somebody's watching, as I got older, I realized like this was kind of the crux of what's going to make me better. And then I embraced it. When I started to embrace it, I started to actually get fascinated by the hard part. Right. I think one of the things that made not only me the best, but like our team the best was actually working on the razor edge, you know? So we did a lot of stuff that no other team had done. In fact, I'm going to say it, and I'm guessing some teams have never heard of it, but we did stuff on treadmills, you know, like with oxygen, like we... We adopted live high, train high, but do intensity low. Yep. So high, high, low, which was pioneered by Ben Levine and Jim Stray Gunderson. Mm -hmm. You may know Jim. Mm -hmm. We got sick of flying to San Diego or spending half our training camp in Europe, you know, doing intensity. So we started to adopt oxygen on the treadmill. Then we took it outside and doing extremely painful long workouts like <laughs> like I used to do three 30 minute time trials just by myself. Right. Or like roller skiing or, yes, yeah. or, or snow skiing, but you right. know, also 12 by four minutes and four minutes on being like above race pace. So, you know, really like where most people would fail. Right. So testing yourself physically mm -hmm. to the razor's edge, probably beyond at times, I would imagine, right? Yeah. I mean, the idea was definitely like, we know to get better, we need to be right at the edge and just beyond it, but not too far past. Right. And the volume was important. So yeah, it was something that as I got older, I embraced, but I, you know, to Taylor's credit, I definitely understand where it's very hard when you're younger to a buy into it and also it's painful it's, yeah right it sucks to do it but right. i think as you as you take it up as your trade all of a sudden it becomes like okay this is this is interesting and you become able to like separate mind and body yeah 
you know, where you can go out and make it hurt and not hurt, you know, mentally so much as like, it's almost like you watch your body do it. Right. And then see how the adaptation happens. Big experiment of, mm-hmm. of mind and body. Yeah. I know Taylor has a coach, uh, Coach Holly, who um, she spends some time with in the summertime, and they talk about the mind will fail before the body will fail. Yeah. Right. Your mind will shut you down before your body really needs to shut down. Right. right. So separating those two things out. So psychologically, did you guys spend a bunch of time working on things like that and working with sports psychologists? And It's interesting you say that. I, th- I feel like I, I agree with that statement that the mind will fail before the body will fail. But as you get older and more developed, I would say the opposite. I feel like I got to a point in my career where I could make my body fail. I could watch it happen. Right. Like in the third person. And you knew you were doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Like literally like my mind was watching myself and just pushing the body and saying, all right, let's see how far you can go. And then the body would fail and the mind would be like, all right, interesting. Yeah, right. That's fascinating. So I think it's interesting you know, how the mind works Mm -hmm. and how we, we now know, you know, epigenetically what we're thinking and and what we're doing and what we're eating matters a great deal Mm -hmm. as far as how our genes express themselves. Right. Right. And there you were for, you know, a long, long career in that, regardless of what what it was being called, what anybody was labeling it. Right. You were, you were doing it. First of all, I want to, I want to just Reel things back for a second and just talk about something you and I talked about briefly yesterday when we were chatting and catching up. I think that the culture of all this is so important Mm. to like how people, you know, embrace their, you know, their work and their, you know, potential for success. And then kind of playing off what you just said, I feel like it's really important to realize that. You know, the mind is essentially, I believe, the tool that can determine success. Right. Like, people always ask me, they're like, what did it feel like, you know, crossing the finish line, winning the Olympic Games? And I'm like, I don't know. It was another race. Right. Carries the big label, has the big medal. It does carry a big label. It's got a big medal. And it definitely opens doors for life, you know. But at the end of the day, I look back on it and... You know, five seconds after I crossed the finish line, all I could think about is the the people and the journey. Right. You know, like the teammates, the coaches. And to me, that was that was kind of like the value of success. Yeah. Right. The experience. Yeah. Right. Like the things that we're experiencing every day and and even now. Right. I mean, especially now. Right. Like now is what matters. Yeah. What what we've done is, you know, you carry you know, I, I don't know if I would call it a burden. You carry the the glory of of what you accomplished, and yet here you are as a forty, almost forty year old man with children and a wife and a job and a career and a lot of passions and things like that. And you know, this this is what matters. Here you and I are having a conversation, catching up, and and uh, hopefully we can. You know, people will hear something that is you know, some little nugget that they can get a hold of and maybe they want to learn a little bit more about or, or they want to know more about USA Nordic Sports or, or you or, or ATBS, the podcast. But, um, you know, the present is what matters, right? And so I was talking to Richard Hamilton about, you know, we were into an epigenetic conversation and, and you know, what we're thinking and all these things that we do for ourselves 
to ourselves, to, to the benefit or the detriment of ourselves matter. It matters a great deal, right? What you did in 2009, 2010, I mean, we're talking, you know, 10 years ago now, right? right. So now is what matters. Let's talk about adversity a little bit. Um, cause now you, you wound, you wound us back to, uh, you know, the mind being so powerful in life and, and being the thing that determines success and whether that's athletics or an academic career or, you know, whatever your professional career might be in life, there are going to be adversities. If you think that change is something you need to initiate, which we do, like we have to steer the ship, right? There's only room for one pilot in this ship, right? But change is coming. And oftentimes that change shows up as, as a, as some kind of adversity. And you were sharing the story. I'd love to hear it in more detail because I wasn't really super familiar with it. And I think you said that in around 2002, you had an injury. Um, many people will go, oh yeah, there's the ski jumping thing. There's the injury, but it wasn't ski jumping, right? So let's talk a little bit about adversity. I think yesterday you said, you know, if not for the adversity, no Olympic gold medal. All right. So I'll, uh, I'll reel the audience back. So I did the 1998 winter Olympic games as a high schooler. Yeah. Right. Nagano, right? Uh, yep. Nagano, Japan. You know, I basically went as a newbie, went for the fun, went for the experience, you know, hit on Wayne Gretzky's sister-in-law, you know, <laughs> um, did all Olympic the things. village type stuff. Yeah, exactly. All the things that first time Olympians do, unless they're like really metal focused. 2002 was the time where we were supposed to win. Yeah. That was something our coaches told us. That was, you know, something we tried to learn to believe we could do. Home turf, Salt Lake City. Totally. Yeah. We ended up coming up short. So I won the last World Cup going into the games. Mm -hmm. It was my first top five, I think, ever. And, you know, wasn't even close individually. And we ended up getting fourth in the team event which was a huge disappointment. And, you know, at that point I was, I think myself and our, my teammates were all almost distraught. Yeah. And so much work at that point. Right, so yeah, many yeah. hours, so, we, so many miles. Yeah. We spent like, you know, five years trying to learn to believe that we could do it and right. you know set those high goals, et cetera. And it was the following summer where, you know, I, I probably spent six months crying and losing sleep over this and blah, blah, blah. And I ended up having an unfortunate accident, uh, diving into a swimming pool and. Oh yeah. Billy's showing me his swimming pool injury tattoo. Yep. Wow. That's a reminder. Ended up with a, uh, sev seven inch skull fracture and a severe subdermal, uh, hematoma. And the result was I had to take a year off. It was probably the one thing that kept me from quitting, mm. you know, out of the game. Yep. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, my belief was I'm going to win a medal in 2002. Right. And then I'm going to walk away, change my name, you know, move <laughs> on in life. Did that. Never, never look back. Right. So the accident ended up being the thing that slowed me down enough to come back and I remember the following spring when I was making the decision, am I going to go back to skiing? Am I not going to go back? I said, all right, I'm going to go back, but I'm going back with a new set of rules. One is I'm going to have fun. If it's not fun, I'm, you know, yep. I'm out. Good life lesson right there. I, I set some high goals. 
you know, but I built it strategically over like an eight year period. Mm-hmm. So it was like building up to the victory in 2010. I still have that piece of paper. It's just nice. a napkin. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> like one goal a year. Dead in goals. Yep. It just taught me to slow down and kind of enjoy the ride. Yeah. Yeah. It was a wild, wild experience. I bet. But I, I definitely believe like I was so miserable after failing to win a medal in 2002. If I had not gotten injured that summer, the following summer in 2003, essentially, I would have been done. And, you know, who knows what what would happen. Yeah, right. And the career went on until, did you say uh, 2015, right? 2015. Yeah. So from 2002 to 2015, with a lot of incredible success, Mm -hmm. first American to win a gold medal in a Nordic discipline. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. One of my intentions with ATBS, the podcast, is to see if we can learn and share, right? There are things that I like to learn. I think we can share things outwardly that, you know, it's not just about somebody who's going to go out there and try and be a Nordic combined athlete, right? It's about being in life and there's going to be adversity. And I think what one of the things you said that we live in such a fast paced world that and and I think people's lives get like this where, you know, they're they're shooting for some target, some goal, some some retirement, some achievement, whatever it might be. And it can be difficult to, I think, to slow down and assess and be kind to yourself really is, I think, one of the pieces, right? I think we can, we're our own worst critics in life. And, and I think slowing down, assessing life. I had a great experience with a friend of mine and about this time last year, about a about two weeks before this. And we went out on a 14 day road trip skiing and he's a professional guy. He had not had that opportunity probably since high school or college. And, you know, it was really interesting to watch him kind of unwind and see the layers peel off from like, okay, where are we going to go? Where are we going to sleep? Where are we going to ski? What are we going to do to oh, it doesn't really matter where we go do that, right? We're here. And and so I think one of the lessons that I'm hearing is, you know, one, patience, perseverance, stick to it, give yourself some time to breathe, assess the situation. We hear it everywhere, right? Just goal setting is key, knowing what you want to accomplish and not expecting it to happen tomorrow, Right. And, and certain things are going to take some time. I think the crew athlete thing, and, and I hope that some of you are out there listening that, you know, it's going to take some time, right? You're going to, and Taylor, I know knows this, right? She's building and building and building. And, um, you know, this is a, hopefully life is a, is a long journey. I don't think that's the only and best way to measure it, by the way. I think we can measure it by what we do today and, and how we, you know, how we proceed on a daily basis, moment by moment, moment basis. But, you know, when you're pursuing a goal professionally, athletically, um, you know, time and, and kindness with others and yourself, right. And a plan, right. sounds like you guys had a, had, had an awesome plan and then you have to modify that plan, right? Like, oh, the five-year plan into 2002 didn't really pan out yet. You know, the eight-year plan beyond that seemed to work out pretty well. Yeah. What I've noticed, and I actually need to plug back into some of the things I learned earlier in my life, is the lessons from sport that I learned, you know, patience, planning, goal setting, 
they all prove true in, you know, the work world as well. And people just too often try to like giddy up, you know, they, they try to make it happen next month, next week, next year, and they don't plan ahead. And so that's the part that I think I would like to spend a lot more time you know, sharing with other people. And that's what I do when I speak to companies, you know, I, I definitely try to impress on them. You know, it's important to look down the road, decide where you want to be in five years and then work your way back to today. And, you know, that's, that's a training plan. That's, you know, it's a meso cycle. It's a macro cycle. It's, it's a lot of different things that get you from here to there. Um, You mentioned if I asked your wife, you know, she would suggest that maybe you could hearken back to some of the things you learned in sport and, and integrate them into your life a little bit more. What would they be? Patience would yeah. be the biggest one right now. Right. I mean, challenging with young kids on the ground too. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I guess to share something a little bit more personal for you and I, you know, I run an organization called USA Nordic Sport now, which is basically the national leadership organization for ski jumping and Nordic combined. And it's not something that existed, you know, 10 years ago. Right. So I've basically tried to like just accelerate it, grow it as fast as possible, run it across the finish line. And I'm starting to realize like the finish line is not tomorrow. Right. It's not next year. I, you know, I think we've done a good job building up something, you know, and building a foundation for something, but, you know, taking my own lesson, it's time to start to slow down, look long-term and set goals for 10 years down the road. And I mean, Billy and I are looking at each other here, both having been Nordic athletes, right? Me and ski jumper, Nordic combined skier. And, and it's a really interesting, you know, Billy's success aside, I think, um, and you can correct me, what are the other successes that have occurred, let's say in the last, I know in my era, Jeff Hastings was, you know, he got fourth in Sarajevo in ski jumping, which at the time was one of the best finishes for an American. What do we, you know, what do we have going now? Like, what have we had since your career? I know there've been some really, uh, really great athletes, but Nordic combined specifically, like, where are we in that discipline today? I think we're totally in building up mode. Yeah. And that's part of why I said we have to be patient. Right. So we have a very young group, ski jumping and Nordic combined, men and women. Gotcha. So, you know. And using you as an example, like you didn't peak until you were well into your 20s. Yep. Right. I mean, you went 29. deep. You went deep. Yep. Um, much longer than many, right? I retired at 26, I think, 27. And and many feel like, okay, I got to go get a job and do something and and. Right many athletes aren't peaking at 22 years old, right? There's a later I mean, peak. Almost nobody at, at this point. Right. You know, Alpine, Nordic, they're both very mature disciplines at this point. Yeah. So it takes a lot of time to get athletes to that, you know, the, that level. Um, yeah, no, I mean, we're definitely in like building up mode yeah. and it's something I embrace on the athletic side, yeah. but organizationally speaking, going back to, you know, what we just talked about, like, I also have to embrace that it's going to take time to build up, you know, the financial and, you know, organizational side of everything we're trying to do. Right. Let's go back to, uh, you said there are like 30 places in the country where you can ski jump. Is that right? And you would know because you visit most of them and get out there to the clubs and do all that. 
30 places you can ski jump, right? So when people go, oh my gosh, how did you get started in that? Well, it's not easy. You got to be near one of those places, right? Yeah. The other thing that I'd like to mention is that on USA Nordic, the website, there's a an alumnus who curates the story project, which if somebody's been a ski jumper or Nordic combined athlete in this country, it's a very small community of people, right? Present and past. And Jeff Hastings curates the story project, which goes on during the month of December. And somebody, every day, somebody has an experience in the Nordic world, shares a story. And it's a great 30-day run to get in, in the history and the the stories that come up. Some are really, you know, like a mother, you know, Susie Hastings or something like that, or my mother has put a story out there. But then there are some of these old timers who you know, are showing pictures from ski jumping into Soldier Field in Chicago or ski jumping into the, into the Orange Bowl or something, right? Like it's amazing the things that have gone on in this sport and the history is fantastic, right? So I encourage people to go check that out Yeah, because it's all archived there as well. It is honestly like one of the coolest things I've ever come across. And I, I'm not saying that as the director, I'm just literally like I stumbled into it and I'm like, wow. (laughs) Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. Can we talk about, I'd, I'd like to ask you about do you have a mindfulness practice? Do you meditate? Do you, and the reason I tie this back in is it's a fascination for me. Mm-hmm. You know, the mind and the immune system are, are like the two incredibly powerful tools that we have. And I've been meditating and practicing yoga and some other energy practices for quite some time. Did you have a sports psychologist who shared with you mental imagery, you know, for, for ski jumping, I'm sure. I, I mean, I, I, I'm asking and then I'm saying, I'm sure. So where were you on sports psychology? Did you have one sports psychologist? Because a lot of people hear meditation in today's world and they, and it freezes them up, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I could never do that. I don't want to go live in a, a monastery somewhere. Yeah. But if we've gone into a deeply relaxed state and we visualized anything in our lives happening athletically, career-wise, what have you, we've already done part of it. And this is going to be a recurring theme here at ATBS because I think our mind is such an incredibly powerful tool. Yep. One thing I should be doing is doing more of what I used to do as an athlete. So over the over the course of my career, I worked with a lot of different sports psychologists. And it wasn't until I met an individual called uh, or named Rich Gordon mm-hmm. that it all kind of connected and clicked. So I always kind of had my own best practices and stuff I still use today. But, you know, sometimes you find one person that makes a difference. Mm, And so he flipped the switch on that for you. He he did. Yep. He was actually very interesting. We could probably have a whole podcast just on this guy. Right. I use sports psychology from the beginning of my career, regardless of having the best individual to work with, you know, visualization goal setting, you know, all the different aspects. Yeah. He drove it home. And it's something that to your point, I should probably be in, you know, involving more into my business practices these days. Well, it comes around too, right? Like you were saying that, that, you know, here you are, you've been at the helm of USA Nordic for, uh, for what, four years? Almost. Yep. Almost four years. And like you said, I mean, and it doesn't surprise me knowing, you know, you, your personality is let's, let's go, let's get it, let's make this happen. Right. And then just now you're kind of winding, taking a little broader view and it doesn't, it sounds actually from my perspective, fairly similar to the lead into 2002 and then the longer view to 2010. Right. Right. So business wise, 
And then, of course, you know, with young kids, four and nine, right? Mm-hmm. It's a busy time in life. It is. Right? It's, yep. and, and fitting. And I think most everybody listening is is going to have that, right? Like, where do you find the time to do this or that or the next thing, right? No one's doing this perfectly, right? No one, No one's living this life perfectly, right? We can all think of things, oh... Somebody said to me the other day, and I've heard this a couple of times, like, stop shooting on yourself. Like, yeah. oh, I should do this or I shouldn't do that. Right. Yeah. And oh, we can integrate when we have a mind to and, and when it becomes when we re- sometimes I think for a lot of people, it's not until not that it's too late, but until they get some wake up call. Right. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I think that and this is where should comes in. I should be meditating or I should be eating better or I should be moving and exercising, right? And not until somebody gets some news later in life, let's say, hopefully, um, hopefully not at all, but but oftentimes later in life where you get some gut punch, some wake-up call that goes, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step back a little bit here. And Billy and I were talking about this, and I guess this is this will be the first time I think on this podcast that I've mentioned it. But um, you know, I had a, an experience that happened to me three and a half years ago. It was my wake up call, and I've been living a great life and and doing a lot of great things. But health wise, oh, okay, I got a complete reset, right? Where you then you look and then you then you really have to, um, you know, I heard the word cancer. Right. And, and many people in this world will hear that. Um, I think I think statistics are one in three creeping towards one in two people in their lifetime will hear the words. I'm sorry to tell you, you have cancer. And it's a it's a shocker. Right. Like it even just I haven't said this. I haven't talked about this on the podcast yet, but I think it's relevant as it as it relates to adversity and and the mind and the immune system and all of the things that we can do and um again you get the wake-up call for you dive into the pool hit your head hard and 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 get sidelined for a year and then there's a complete reset right like it sounds to me like that occurred where you assess the situation you reevaluate, you change course, you make a new plan, you integrate new things because what you'd been doing didn't get you where you wanted to be. In my case, you know, like the wake up call, the shock, and, and I will get into this on ATBS, the podcast, because many people have said to me, Jeff, you know, like thriving with cancer, maybe you could share some of those things with people. And I, and I intend to, I just haven't quite figured out how best to do that. So I, I, it just kind of naturally organically came up here and, and it's a reasonable time to do it, but you do take a step back and, and assess. And then I have been on a, a personal exploration now for years, not for an answer. And I think in the culture, I think in, in our Western culture, lots of people are looking for an answer uphill a particular way of dieting and and eating a particular way of exercising and at the end of the day there are seven billion unique humans on this planet and it's going to be different for everybody nobody's doing it perfectly and i think we just you know like as you said when you talked about your wife like she would like me to integrate some of like you to integrate some of the things that you learned during sport and and you will i have no doubt right when the Mm -hmm. time is right so um 
I appreciate us getting into that a little bit. I hadn't fi- quite figured out how to actually talk about myself and and some of my challenges, but I do see it as a gift what occurred in my life because it has changed the way I see the world, right? It, it's provided me with a lens through which to view the world, which is completely different than the lens I was looking through five years ago. So for anybody who's interested in what the heck we're talking about, if you're not familiar with Nordic Sports, usanordic.org. And, and it's uh, Billy is pretty critical of the website because he's at the helm of the organization. I've had a good hard look at it. And there's a bunch of great information in there that will tune everybody in. Right. Mm-hmm. One of the things I hear I've heard for years is, oh, my gosh, when I see that ski jumping, it's so spectacular. Right. And when do most people see ski jumping every four years when it's on NBC? Right. And, you know, it's happening all the time. It's happening summer, winter. It's happening every year. It's happening every day. And if you're curious about it, Nordic combined cross country ski jumping men and women, which is a, a development since I was in the sport. Right. When I was a ski jumper, there were like two female ski jumpers in the world, right? And now it's an Olympic sport and and there are a bunch of young ladies who do it very, very well. We've got some pioneers here right in our backyard who did a wonderful job. What would you like to say about USA Nordic to share with share with listeners, just what they can do if they're interested, how they can learn about it other than just going to the website? I mean, I think the biggest thing is, you know, we have a lot of great things going on. I think everybody would find it fascinating. Like, what does it take to fly 800 feet on skis? Who doesn't want to fly? Everybody says they'd like to fly. Exactly. You know, so check out the website, check out our social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. We've got a lot of young athletes. That's one of our big focuses is development. So, you know, join our journey. Yeah, cool. Follow us on, you know, social media and, and, you know, to the extent that you can on, on the website. And I think, you know, people will find it absolutely fascinating. What does it take to do what we do? Right. Yeah. I love it. Uh, Billy DeMong, five-time Olympian, Olympic champion, world champion, Nordic combined skier, and just a great guy doing a great job at USA Nordic. And, and if you're interested, uh, and I encourage people to go check it out, usanordic.org yep. and check it out. And, uh, I hope you'll come back and, and, uh, we'll have another chat, Billy. Definitely. All right. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for spending your time with Billy and me today. I appreciate it. And I sure enjoyed that conversation with Billy. I encourage you to check out the sports of ski jumping and Nordic combined at usanordic.org. I'll post all of the information in the program notes and on our website. The sports, the athletes, and the organization USA Nordic are all worthy of a closer look. Until next time, take care and please be kind.